Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 16 and 17 today of Ezra chapter 10. Then the returned exiles did so. That means they returned to their home and prepared for the examination. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each one of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Let's pray. Our Father, open your scripture to us this morning through your Holy Spirit. The author of this Bible that we treasure. Open our hearts to hear your Spirit speak to us. To correct us. To teach us. To train us in righteousness. To speak conviction to our hearts to speak comfort to our hearts. Because we know in all things, the Spirit will be pointing to the object of our faith, the author and the perfecter. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today we are nearing the end of the book of Ezra. And throughout this book, which tells of two returns from Babylon to Judah under two different leaders for two different purposes, God has kept the word He spoke to the prophets reaching all the way back to Moses. God's faithfulness is certainly not a subject that's unique to Ezra but we see Him working through many different people and in many different circumstances. I thank God that He included this book in His Holy Scriptures because it gives us something rather unique in the Old Testament. If you look at any other book in the Old Testament, except for the poetic books, we see a difference between the writer and the people he is writing about. To put it another way, in almost every point in the Old Testament, we see the people of God out of step with the holiness that God commands. Think about it. When we look at Israel in the wilderness, they're always contending with God, always grumbling and always complaining. As they enter the land, they're unified when they're on the field with Joshua. But then when they get off the field, they become scattered We see sin cropping up in all these different places. When we reach the book of Judges, each man does what is right in his own eyes. And the writer of the book of Judges looks harshly on that fact. Go to the historical books or the prophetic books and every one of them will tell you how out of step God's people are with Him. The writer of those historical books, the Chronicles and the Kings, even calls out the kings of Israel and Judah, declaring them to be good or evil kings based 
on whether they left, led Israel to worship God alone or they allowed the high places, those idolatrous temples, to stand or even to increase. So at most every point in the Old Testament, we see the writer of the book disagreeing with the people being written about. But then we get to the 10th chapter of Ezra. Here, the writer of the book is in complete agreement with the faithful decision made by the gathered exiles at their meeting in the rain. We have precious few examples in the Old Testament of people doing the right things in the right way for the right reason. More often we see people doing exactly the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. And the writer or the prophet takes them to task for their disobedience and their faithlessness. Were it not for Ezra, we would be lacking this shining example of how to live faithfully even after we've sinned. The ending of Ezra is one of those few places where the people made the right decision and then followed through with their commitment. At the Mount of God, when, on Mount Sinai, when God gave the law to His people, we see them making the right decision, but they didn't stick with it. Here in Ezra, we see them completing the task. In spite of the objections of the men we looked at last week, the returned exiles did what they declared they would do. At its heart, this book of Ezra, particularly the last half, is a living example of how to relate, or rather not relate, to temptation and to sin. That's not to say that Ezra is an allegory or a morality tale. No. The events of this book are entirely real. The author takes great care in giving us real names of real people throughout the book. There are real dates. There are real kings. There is verifiable historical setting. We know that everything that is said in this book happened exactly as it is written. But this book is something better than an allegory or a story. This book is a set of good examples to instruct us in how to put away sin in our lives. Ezra and the people were dealing with real sin. And their decision in obedience to God was to not stop at half measures and good intentions in dealing with their sin. They completed their work with diligence. I don't know of another place in the Bible until we reach the Gospels where we're given such an intimate view of a successful war against sin. And the reason for their success, if I may skip to the end of today's passage, was that they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. They kept on going until the end. 
If that sounds like the gospel's promise, the doctrine of the perseverance of God's chosen, I would tell you I'm quite sure that's no accident at all. Our God does not deal in half measures. You are not half saved. You are not half redeemed. You are not half alive in Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ was not half God. He was not half man. John 1 verses 1 through 3 say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things, not half of them, came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. God is not the God of half measures, and He does not tolerate half measures from His people. We are not commanded to do your best to be good. We are commanded... I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, because I am holy. That's from Leviticus 11.44. We are not told to begrudgingly help those whom you must. In Matthew 5.41, Jesus tells us, Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. The people at the meeting in the rain had a choice once they had given their agreement to the solution to their sin that Ezra had proclaimed before him. That miraculous unanimity in their desire to remove their sin. And even those that we saw last week who objected did so only because they wanted the process to move faster even if it risked hurting people who had done no wrong. That was the reason for their objection. I didn't say this at the time, but I do wonder if they made the mistake that many commentators make today. That if they did not think that this entire sin and national revival was fundamentally about racial purity... Because if it was just about race, if it was just about marrying foreign women, women who were not Jewish, then they would be right. This is an exceedingly simple thing to do. If you are not married to a Jew, get rid of them. That would have been a simple solution. They could have done that in the rain. They could have told them, if you're a Jew, stay. If you're not a Jew, get out. But that was not. The sin. It was not a sin to not be a Jew. It was a sin to worship idols. I've explained to you all often and in detail, we've gone through it ad nauseum, why that is simply not the purpose of of this commission we see formed in our passage today. It was not about the purity of blood. It was about the purity of worship among God's people. When Paul was describing the advantages of the nation of Israel, it was not to the blood of Abraham that he went. 
In Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, he tells us that the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. The things he lists here are not about who your father was. The things he lists here are about their relationship with God. When we talk about adoption, that is those who are in in an intimate relationship with God. When he talks about glory, covenants, law, temple service, and promises, these are all related to the worship as God has commanded it. Then finally, we do see that he declares it is through their lineage that the Christ was born in the flesh. But he's not alluding to the purity of the blood, but the lineage of the faithful servants of God. Because we know there's a Canaanite in Jesus' lineage. There's a Moabite in Jesus' lineage. The kind of racism that Ezra is often accused of was as wrong then as it is now. It was just as much against the will of God then as now. And Ezra and the people with him were innocent in that regard. What the people had been guilty of and what they had committed themselves to leave behind was the unlawful marriages with those who were not God's people. With those who had no love for God. With those who worshipped idols. The questions put before this commission were not, is this person a foreigner? And then stop there. That may be how they began, but then the next question is of utmost importance. Is this person a worshiper of God alone? When we looked at the agreement of the people a few weeks ago, I told you that their repentance was genuine because they had put a plan into action. But if that was as far as they had gone, I certainly wouldn't have been quite as sure of their genuineness. It's easy to plan. But in the verses today and in the remaining verses in the book of Ezra, we see the great importance they placed on their continuing obedience to God. And there are some things I would like to point out in the way that they put away their sin that can instruct us in putting away our own. They took it quite seriously. You'll recall that when Ezra sent the proclamation out to all the people of Judah, how many days did he give them to get there? Three days. When Ezra appointed this commission, he took ten days to instruct them. They took this very seriously. As they went about their business, we see chronicled here when they began and when they ended. And they went through this great sin in 75 days. They took their time. 
they looked at the evidence. And so the first thing I would mention to you is that Ezra and the people chose the method and the people who would allow the most most thorough examination of the people for this sin. He chose people who were heads of families. He didn't simply set up a commission of priests to form some sort of inquisition. He didn't say, I'm going to bring together all the priests and the Levites in the temple and we are going to sit in judgment. He chose the heads of each family because they were familiar with all the details of that family. They were the ones who knew their families. They knew the secrets that had lain hidden for so long. And it also was not a call for volunteers. It was a selection by name of these men. This certainly wasn't the easiest way to accomplish the task of removing the sin from the people, but it was unarguably the most thorough. And when we're going after sin in our own lives, thorough is the name of the game. People get into trouble when they try to simply find the fastest way to get past a particularly difficult sin. Often the expedient solution is to simply replace one sin with another that is more socially acceptable. This makes no real progress in our lives and usually results in a greater enslavement to the new sin than existed under the old. But rather than merely being quick in dealing with sin, we should seek to be entirely thorough in eradicating this sin to make sure nothing is left, not even the root. Anything less allows for the rejuvenation of the sin which will grow to have a greater influence on us. In Hebrews 12, 14 and 15, we are told to pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. For years when I read this passage, I thought that the root of bitterness meant something like allowing myself to be bitter against another person. But that's not what it means. In the context of this verse, the root, which is bitter to our spirit, is what is left when we stop short in our work towards sanctification. It is the remainder of our sin, the door for temptation that we allow to remain in our lives. It is the root of bitterness, the bitter root that can so easily defile our souls. That bitter root is the leftover when we give up before the sin is gone. It would be like an addict in a moment of repentance, disposing of all their drugs, but retaining 
their paraphernalia. When the willpower fails, the items that allowed them to be addicted will still be there. A root of bitterness to them that will destroy them. It would also be like someone who engages in sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant and then repents. But they maintain the relationship with the person they were inappropriately intimate with. Talking, chatting, meeting with them in what they consider safe ways. That bitter root will grow again and drag that person back to sin. Or like someone who is addicted to pornography, who repents of the sin, but keeps the material in a box, or saves the websites on their computer. That bitter root will present a constant temptation for them as long as they, compl- as, as long as they keep those tiniest of mementos. Rather than allow any remnant of that sin to remain alive, we must heed what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. You all know why we might not throw away the paraphernalia, why we would keep an illicit relationship on speed dial, or why we would store the addresses of pornographic sites. The reason we do this is not generally because we forgot or made an innocent mistake. Too often we have kept those things so that we could go back. That is the definition of the word provision. To look forward, to plan for. When we fail to remove those last pieces of sin, those last temptations, those last reminders of our sin, then we are giving forethought to returning to it someday. When the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us to make no provision for the flesh, He is telling us to make no plan, to allow no possibility to indulge or satisfy the flesh anymore in that sin. Christian, that is diligence. To erase the path so completely to your sin, so thoroughly that you can never find your way back to it. To deal with your will or your opportunity towards sin as thoroughly as Jesus Christ dealt with the guilt of your sin. Because Jesus Christ dealt fully with the guilt of your sin. He came to set you free from its bonds. Galatians 4.9 says, How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? 
Why do you let that root stay so that it can grow? Why have you not killed it, dug up the root, and burned it too? 2 Peter 2.9 tells us, By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. As we come to the Lord's table today, I urge you to come in sincere repentance with every intention to follow through, to find those last roots, those last vestiges of sin in your life and remove them. But don't stop at the table. Don't stop at good intentions. Make your plan. And do everything you can to remove that sin and any temptation toward it. Knowing that it was the eternal Son of God who paid the price for your sin. Who took the wrath of God that you deserved, portraying that weight by dying on the cross. Come to this table today, repenting of whatever sin you may find in your life. Some of these that I have mentioned, perhaps even others, pride or lust, envy or any other. And let the provision you make in this moment be the plan to complete the death, to complete the eradication of that sin, to make a complete end of it. Don't let the possibility of a difficult battle or the likelihood that you will pine for that sin that you have held for such a long time compromise your word to God. I will tell you now, you will miss the sin. What you have to do is love Jesus more. Be diligent in searching out where it lures you. And sealing off those avenues for good. Making it impossible to travel those paths to sin that you have so often tread. And come to this table this morning assured that if you are in Christ, you have already been forgiven. You have already been freed And you have the Holy Spirit in you to continue the fight even when you are weak. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that we would be diligent in putting away those sins which stick so closely to us that we would not leave the tiniest root from which that sin could grow in our lives again. The battle may be long. The commitment might be difficult. But God, let us love You more than our sin. Your grace is greater. Your love calls us. You have reached to us before we ever 
reached to you. And even the faith we have in you is a gift that you have given. All glory and honor and praise goes to you because left in our flesh we would never walk away from sin. But in you we have a treasure that is greater than anything this world has to offer. Let us pray for each other. Let us pray for ourselves. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous Lamb of God, we pray. Amen.